You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Moritz Siebert and I, Niels Kastelarsen, are back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series, which is our weekly ongoing raw exploration of the world of rules-based investing, and of course, where we also take some of your questions. But today, uh, we're going to deviate a little bit from our usual format, because we have a fantastic guest joining us, namely Rufus Ranking, who is the co-founder of Ampersand Investment Management. Rufus has been in our industry for a very long time, and I'm sure you will agree, it's a great time I have to have him on, as lots of things are happening right now. Now... Um before we turn to you, Rufus, uh, as we normally do, um, Morris and I is just going to run through a few things that uh, caught our attention uh, this week. So, um, first of all, welcome and nice to uh, have you here. And Moritz, nice to see you again as well, of course. Um, but if you have an extra sip of your morning coffee, then uh, Morris and I will do our little introduction before we get into all the details we want to talk to you about. Hope that sounds fine. That's great. Good stuff. Um, now, uh, this week, in one sense, not a lot happened uh, that at least caught my attention. Of course, we have the usual things such as the Fed balance sheet that keeps uh, growing significantly. We're up to $6.9 trillion now, another $180 billion since the week before. And of course, with all that liquidity, and not surprising, equities had another decent uh, week, up almost 4% on the futures contract. Um, on top of all of that uh, stimulus, we had uh, the Fed chairman, Jerome Powell, uh, out with quite a few commentary, including uh, last Sunday, he was on 60 Minutes, uh, with a very optimistic uh, view, I would say, given the current conditions. Um, but, you know, despite all his comments and, of course, willingness to print money, um, there is one thing that he can't print, and that is jobs. And... Uh, so it must have been a little bit disconcerting for the Fed to see another 2.4 million Americans filing for jobless claims uh, this week, bringing the total, which is just crazy, up to 38.6 million people in the last um, nine weeks or so. But I guess maybe for for people who follow uh, at least the FinTwit world, I think maybe the most exciting thing that happened this week was this uh, kind of Twitter war or Twitter spat, whatever the word is, between Nesem Talib and um, Cliff Asnes. But I know I did not see the exchange. I just seen some headlines. So I have a feeling, Moritz, that you might actually know more about this than I do. But uh, that's kind of what uh, what caught my attention this week. Well, first of all, Rufus, welcome to the show. Hi, Niels. Um, hey. Yeah, the celebrity death match on Twitter uh, between Cliff Asnes <laughs> and uh, Nassim Taleb, um, you know, I, I'm not sure what really cost it. It seems to be some comment on on tails and uh, you know the, the Fed tail distribution and uh, you know the business of Universa and how Taleb does his business and how Asnes does his business and that Asnes uh, funds or the AQR funds have been underperforming. I don't know the root cause, but it just went off the rails and the two, the two guys, uh, both of of whom I think are brilliant minds just um, went after each other like uh, two 14-year-old kids. So uh, it's been entertaining to read through that uh, Twitter <laughs> Twitter spat. Yeah. 
yeah, it, it, it happened. Uh, maybe it continues. I'll watch out for it. <laughs> well, how's your week, by the way? I mean, as I said, I didn't see a lot. We obviously had yeah. some moves again in energy and all of that usual stuff. Down week. Um, down week, to be frank, a uh, bit more than minus 1.5% down for this week, close to minus 2% month to date. Still positive, about 1.2%, 1.3% year to date. And um, when I looked at the portfolio this morning, uh, I had a couple of losing positions, like, you know, being short crude is uh, an uncomfortable position right now, uncomfortable in quotes. Um, it is the position to have still, at least according to my systems, but it's been losing money. Um, short the emissions contract, short silver, as uncomfortable as being short crude right now. So all of that lost money. And then when I looked at the, the, the positions that made money, uh, all of those gains have been very, very minor, like, you know, a couple of basis points here and there, half a basis point, stuff like that, but nothing major. So it's the losing positions have been significantly larger than those those winners. And so the result of that is minus one and a half percent for this week. No trades, no exits, no new entries, stable portfolio. Yeah, I find that fascinating when you talk about the fact you had a whole week without any trading. I mean, it, it's... Uh... It's uh, it's amazing in many ways, right? That you can run a system like, like you do, and uh, and 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 not have more activity. And I think that's one of the things that we certainly know from behavioral finance that a lot of people believe that the more active you are, the more decisions you make, the better it is. But clearly, that's not the case. Uh, sometimes, doing nothing is is a good idea. Exactly. Press the button when it's the right time to press the button when you get a signal or when you get an exit and you really, you know, your, your system tells you to change the portfolio. Other than that, it's a pretty dull job. You know, don't get too tempted with uh, anything else and play around with those uh, fancy charts and uh, just just wait for the right time and then do the trading. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, on our side as well, it was a quiet week. Uh, it was a little bit of a down week as well. Nothing... Nothing too wild, frankly. Uh, performance was really divided between the sectors when I look at it. Uh, you know, on the downside, clearly energy, currencies, metals, equities, with the exception of NASDAQ. Um, that was really the losers on our side. And then mitigating the losses were things like grains and softs doing uh, reasonably well. Um, but other than that, really uninteresting uh, week in, in, in many ways. And of course, next week we have a a shortened holiday week, um, but let's see what happens. Uh, oftentimes, uh, when you least expect it, is when things start to get going again. But let's uh, let's turn to you, Rufus. Before we do so, let me just preface a little bit that we have had some technical issues with uh, the connection to Rufus. So, if you hear slight uh, different noises than compared to normal, that is why we're trying to kind of. Uh, our own do-it-yourself fix for this particular uh, recording, so I apologize for that. But hopefully you'll you'll be fine and you'll be able to hear Rufus um, loud and clear. But Rufus, you're not a manager; you have a slightly different um, kind of role in the uh, in the industry. Um, but as I said, you've been around for a long time. So why don't you give us a little bit of context before we dive into some of the topics, um, just to how you ended up and, and kind of your journey through this, you know, crazy industry, so to speak, um, and, and and some of the things that that you've spent a lot of time doing, which is slightly different to what uh, Moritz and, and I do. Sure. Uh, th thank you so much for having me today. Um, 
The AHL reunion podcast is one of my favorite ever. <laughs> Story kind. <laughs> so I don't think I've had a very interesting story personally, but as you said, we are, I am primarily an allocator rather than a trader. So the thing we're looking for is to allocate to a broad array of strategies that do different things and work well together in a portfolio. So highly diversified, working with plenty of great trend followers and plenty of great non-trend followers. So I personally have been allocating for a little over a decade now. And that's been in commodity pools as well as in the mutual fund space. And we also worked with one of the big banks to build a usage platform of CTA strategies. And and just again, maybe a little bit of uh, for for a little bit more context, uh, because again, I find that our industry is quite niche. I mean, not a lot of people really are involved in it. It's it's fairly small in many ways. Um, so I was just curious. I mean, how did you end up, um, you know, saying, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's let's start allocating to some CTAs. <laughs> I well, I started working with a firm that was already in business doing this. Um, so I actually responded to an ad on monster.com okay. uh, some time ago and started out in sales. Then started working in product development and research with the founders and then moved into portfolio management as well. So it was kind of the evolution. Um, my undergrad was in philosophy. Mm -hmm. So that guides a lot of the way I and my partners think about allocation and investment management. Uh, and then I moved on to doing a doctorate eventually in finance, but that's kind of it's been a kind of long winding road. Yeah, and and it's funny you mentioned that, and 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 again, I'm kind of just jumping off of some of the things you say um, initially, at least. Um, I mean, I think to a large extent, and we've seen we we often get these questions. I think Moritz and I, um, where deep down uh, the answer is. You know, trend following to a large extent, it is a philosophy. I mean, um, it's not just about where to buy and where to sell. I think that, and certainly, you know, when we have Jerry on, um, you know, he seems to also be applying this philosophy to other things than just trading. So I think you can talk about it as a philosophy. And so I'm just curious, since you have obviously lots more experience in philosophy than I do. How do you view that? I mean, and 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 can we use that to our advantage or disadvantage in our narrative if we start thinking of trend following more as a philosophy than just a trading strategy? I think it's very helpful, at least for some subset of people, myself included, where you know philosophy gives you tools to ask good questions and make you know clear inquiries. So how does the world work? What can we know about it? What can we do about it? So one of the things we believe quite strongly, my partners and I, is that we cannot forecast CTA returns, especially short or medium time horizons. So we don't know what trend following is going to do over the next quarter or year, short term, either a strategy or a particular individual manager. We're just not going to try to do that. We have seen zero evidence we can forecast CTA returns to the benefit of our investors. 
Now, a lot of people will say that, and then you'll have some really bad or good performance. They will make an allocation change and then come up with some story after the fact to rationalize that behavior. Um, so we know humans do that, and we are inclined to do that. So we work very hard not to do that. So that's all pieces of you know, philosophy being really helpful and instructive in how we can be productive in our allocation efforts. Yeah, and, and certainly I think that on, on the manager side, I mean, we certainly subscribe to a number of core beliefs or philosophies that have guided us through, you know, many challenging periods over uh, many decades. And, and I do think that you have to have, and I'm sure it's the same with value managers and any other managers, even long only, I'm sure they have their own version of their philosophy that they uh, they stick to. Now, I just want to kick it off and then uh, let Moritz uh, uh come in with some of his questions. But I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of the things that, you know, not is, is not only really kind of um, becoming more um, poignant, uh, given the recent events uh, with COVID-19. Um, but I guess all investors, uh, you know, when they sit uh, and doing their, their, their research, what they're really trying to do is to build a truly diversified portfolio. And a lot of people say, they are and that's what they've done but then something like COVID-19 comes along and and maybe they realize that that may not be the case so just from that starting point uh, and I don't know if if those are some of the discussions you're having ongoing or maybe having more of right now but as you go into that discussion and, and I don't even know if that's the starting point of the discussion but what are your thoughts about truly diversified portfolios um and i'm not talking about diversified cta portfolios. i'm talking about truly holistically diversified portfolios well the i think one of the first things to keep in mind is diversification works really well most of the time but not always and so you can have an extreme or strange market behavior that appears to invalidate whatever you're doing and that's when you have to step back and say okay does this really show that the world has fundamentally changed? My approach doesn't work anymore. Or is this just an outlier event? And sometimes these things are going to happen. So I do have those discussions with investors where they say, you know, in, in the first quarter, trend following managed futures, A, there was wide dispersion. B, uh, there wasn't this great... Uh, crisis alpha pop in performance with a lot of managers that I think a lot of people expected to some degree. Um, and so that's why I talk a lot about the difference between strategies or elements of the portfolio that are diversifying and how that's different or distinct from an explicit hedge for equity or some other type of risk in the portfolio. So we do talk about that a lot. And we walk through our expectations for how our strategy and the strategies we work with can be expected to behave. And one thing I found interesting was just looking at simple portfolios, say, take a 60-40 equity and fixed income portfolio and look at the benefit, not of, not of one of our funds or a particular CTA, but just a benchmark, SG Trend, SG CTA, and see how the stats have changed or the benefits of diversification have changed, including and not including the first quarter, there's no difference. 
Um, and you can do that exercise. And I've done that exercise with several different uh, inputs and types of portfolios. So the long run batting average or benefits of including managed futures as part of your diversified portfolio hasn't changed at all, whether you include the first quarter of this year or not. No, and, and, and to that point, actually, one of the things that we do sometimes on our side, actually, is we often look at if you wanted to have the optimal portfolio, and just to keep it simple, you optimize just for sharp ratio, and you look at bonds, uh, equities, and a trend-following strategy, of course. In, in our case, we use our own strategy, but, sure. but it could be true as well for, for the SG Trend Index. And, and, and just to show the extreme, what we do is we, we say, what if you wanted to optimize and the start date was just before the tech bubble? Or what if you wanted to optimize and the start date was just at the bottom of the tech bubble? And we do the same for the great financial crisis or the housing bubble, whatever we call that, which was obviously the 0709 event. We do the same. We say, okay, let's start just before the crisis and let's start just after. And what we tend to see is that the allocation that, stay, that stays most static is the allocation to the trend-following strategy, where you see the big difference is the allocation between bonds and stocks. How about that? That is not a surprise to me, but I expect quite surprising to most people that aren't doing what we're doing. Yeah. Moritz? Yeah. Um, hi, Rufus. You've said that uh, you know it's possible you at least cannot forecast CTA returns. Well, Neither can I. I don't think Niels can. I've never met anyone who can. Um, would you therefore say maybe if you know if you can't forecast anything, the best thing to do is to just include every CTA that's out there in your portfolio? Oh, that's a good challenge. I like that. Um, <laughs> so first, we can't forecast returns, but we think we can do an okay job of forecasting dependence. Uh, that which is the generic term for correlation and things like that between the different strategies. And second, we think we can do a somewhat better job of forecasting risk. Uh, as many CTAs, if not most, target a specific volatility, and they can be expected to deliver returns in a certain range. So we can't forecast returns. We think we're decent at forecasting dependence and pretty good at forecasting risk. So that, that changes it a little bit. If we couldn't build any strong expectations about program behavior at all, then you're right. It would make sense to allocate to as many as possible. Right. But since we think we can do an okay job of forecasting how CTAs will interact with each other and what kind of risk they'll deliver over time, uh, we think we can add some benefits in terms of, of manager selection. And just for, for my understanding, when you allocate to CTAs or within your funds, is it a, a pure allocation to CTAs? Is it like, you know, trend following CTAs? It's, that's the, the only thing that's in the portfolio or is it a combination with other asset classes such as, you know, long only equities or private equity, other things, or is it purely trend following CTAs? We do both depending on the mandate. So we have pure CTA portfolios. So it's just a multi-manager, multi-strategy CTA portfolio. But then we also have some mandates for uh, blended portfolios. So equities, fixed income, uh, CTAs as diversifier. And then also some strategies that are futures or options based, but de designed to be 
negatively correlated to equities uh, to actually provide that protection, excuse me. So we do both. And just out of curiosity, actually, when you are given the full reign and say, yeah, let's um, let's build the whole the whole portfolio, so to speak, I have kind of two questions. What would be your um, recommended allocation to the trend-following space? And what do the investors seem to be comfortable with? Because those two numbers may not be the same. They are widely and wildly different in my experience. So typically when we do a multi-asset, multi-strategy portfolio, we're using futures, right? So we don't have to sell necessarily equities or bonds to get full exposure to a portfolio of CTA programs. So we're thinking more in terms of an overlay on a 60-40 or 80-20 type of allocation. So in that circumstance, we think the CTA portfolio, and we think of that as like a diversifier sleeve, uh, can be the same in notional amount as the uh, regular portfolio or traditional portfolio. And then to the extent we're using uh, what we call dynamic hedges, which are strategies with neutral to mildly positive carry and very strong negative correlation to equities, we think that should be somewhere in the range of 25 to 75% of the equity exposure. However, most people, when they're allocating to CTAs, managed futures, trend following, it's usually low single digit percentage of their portfolio. And I, I try to think when I'm talking with clients or, or just investors in general, I want to be completely consistent when I make recommendations. I don't want to say, okay, we do X, but you should do Y. So usually, to get back to uh, Moritz's point, we're not going to bother allocating one or two percent to any strategy because even if they're really really good they're not going to have much impact on the portfolio and at the other end we're not going to allocate more than 12 or 13 percent because the idiosyncratic risk which is arguably by definition unforecastable unexpected that's just too great for our comfort and so when we talk to somebody else how much of this should you have in your portfolio on a real money basis? That is, I'm going to sell some stocks or bonds to invest in a fund. We think if you're just going to do two or three percent, why bother? I agree with the why bother if you want to do two or three percent. Would it be fair to put percent into the fund of hedge funds uh, category or would you classify yourselves as something different? I think that's fair in that to a large extent, that's what you're getting. But, you know, the way we're doing that is, A, we subdivide some mutual funds in the U.S., and we also do some bespoke portfolio and more of an overlay basis. So while we don't have a particular vehicle that's a traditional fund of funds, you know, to a large extent, that's what we're doing. So I don't bristle at, at, at that suggestion. Yeah, no, that that's fine. And, you know, I'm, I'm also asking because, you know, there's fund of funds have been you know, quite quite a few around uh, many, many years ago, and then they uh, became under pressure because of fees um, and, you know, double layering of fees. How do you handle this? So we prefer, we would prefer in the ideal world for us, we prefer to get paid on just performance. Um, and that's consistent with the strategies we allocate to. We prefer just 
uh, all performance fee, no management fee. Well, what I've seen though over the years is in the U.S. is is there something of an allergy to performance based fees? Um, so most investors prefer flat management fees. So typically, in in most of the vehicles we advise on, um, we're charging some kind of small fixed fee. To me, that's you know I understand your philosophy. I agree with it. I mean, managers should be paid for what they deliver, the value they create, and not just a flat fee with no incentive of becoming better. Um, but why do you, because that's one of the things, now we're kind of moving in a little bit, um, you know, just to the kind of the product side. I mean, clearly there's been a much bigger appetite for these flat fee type products. Um, you're the ones having the discussions with the larger uh, end investors in that regard. I mean, why, why? And, and I, you know, I feel that they, you know, well, you tell me, are they the ones dictating this or is it partly the in-between guys and not necessarily saying you in particular, but people who run businesses like you who have advocated for this flat fee and the wonderful um, thing that that can do for investors, um, at least in their view? It's, it's hard to piece out exactly how this evolved. I think there's a perception among a lot of, not all, but a lot of investors that a performance fee is somehow additive when really, you know, the returns you're getting are net of that. And they're very strong incentives, hence the, the other term for it, incentive fees, for managers to perform well. So I, I don't know if it's been the large institutions or, or, or people in the middle who have driven this. I, do, I have seen a lot of large institutions allocate to flat fee futures programs. Um, and so perhaps there's been something of a follower effect with other uh, smaller institutions and firms and, and investors moving towards preferring that approach. Just staying on that point, I mean, from, from my recollection, at least, um, you know, for many, many years, um, and this might sound a little bit harsh, but, you know, that's how I remember it. A lot of the financial institutions were kind of poo-pooing trend following, you know, it doesn't work and whatever. And then suddenly they discovered this kind of, um, you know, uh, rep, you know, trend following replication, momentum. Oh, this is easy. We can do that suddenly. Um, we didn't believe in it for many decades, but now we can do it and we can give it to you really cheap because it's so simple. And so they raised a lot of money and managers who went along that route um, with kind of trend replicating products um, raised a hell of a lot of money, really, um, over a certain period of time. I do think now people are starting to realize that, okay, maybe that it's not exactly the same. So, I mean, from your perspective, um, you know, how do these cheap bargain-type trend strategies differ from the full-fat-type um, trend strategies that's been around for, for ages and who are not willing to give it away for 25 or 50 basis points. Well, as you might expect, I, I have some views on this. Um, first of uh, all, I, I was hoping you had. It's bizarre to me that, I don't know, say somebody needs eye surgery. Are you going to pick the cheapest eye surgeon? Probably not. Okay, so I want to invest in a sophisticated strategy trading probably 100 to 150 derivatives contracts 
representing all the economic activity in the globe that can be accessed in a liquid fashion. Let's pick the cheapest manager. It, it strikes me that that's that, that's a that's kind of a, perhaps an irrational approach is to pick your derivatives trader based on price or exclusively on price. But Rufus, just to stop you there, because I think, and I don't want to really be arguing this case, but I, I am finding myself now on the wrong side of the table here, because what people will say is, well, you know, the exact eye surgery you're going to have, it's so easy. It's a machine that's going to do it. There's no real skill required to give you that eye surgery. So you can choose the, the cheapest one. That's going to be the argument. That's what they we, that's what we hear in our industry, that it is so easy. It is so simple, right? That, that's a good comeback. <laughs> well, I don't just stand on that particular argument. I, I think there's a, a wide array of quality in the different strategies that are out there at a flat fee. Um, we work mm. with some managers who are offering flat fee strategies, and they're offering the exact strategy they've traded for 10, 20, 30 years. And they've you know just yielded to market pressure and move to a flat fee format. And then on the other side, there are people who have basically, I, I, and you, you'll notice I'm not naming any names here uh, or <laughs> elsewhere. I'm also not pitching my funds, for example. But there are other strategies out there that have raised some good money that you look at their methodology and they've arguably committed every error uh, in backtest overfitting so that, that, that causes me some concern because let's say you have 20 or 30 strategies out there that are, you know, 50 bips. Some of them are very well put together and some of them are not. Uh, but on average, the experience is going to be poor. And then again, you have the circumstance where a large group of investors or allocators just say, oh, kind of throw up their hands and are very disappointed. And unfortunately, that's painting a lot of great strategies with, with the same brush that probably don't deserve it. Yeah. Many people out there, Rufus, um, in my opinion, they classify trend as a factor or momentum, both cross-sectional and time series momentum as a form of liquid alternative beta, right? So as the name suggests, it's, it's a beta and therefore the fee should be zero or close to zero. And certainly there shouldn't be any incentive fee because there's no alpha. Right. And, um, you know, the trend following rules, people read the books of Michael Covell and many other books, you know, the basic trend following rules are out there. So do you think it's um, it's, you know, deserved that CTAs uh, charge performance fees in the first place? I, I think there is a place we do pay some trend followers performance fees. Um, I think there's like a, a soft piece to this where when you're making an allocation or following a strategy, how confident are you in that strategy or that manager? And really, I think a lot of the allocation exercise, making a decision to make an allocation or building a trading strategy is an exercise in building confidence either in, in the strategy or in the manager. And so uh, th this is something I, like I teach a, a, a graduate seminar in investing, and this is something I harp on a lot, is a, a backtest is not going to build you confidence. Looking at a track record is not going to build your confidence. And by confidence, I mean whatever strategy it is, 
you're going to have drawdowns. You're going to have performance that is upsetting. But the degree to which you've built your confidence in a, in a strong, steady, and, and rational fashion is going to be the difference between actually being able to reap the benefits of that strategy or program versus you know, in, engaging in what I call bad investor behavior and selling at the worst possible time. So to the degree we build that kind of level of confidence in trend followers, absolutely. Uh, we are still happy to pay performance fees. And speaking about managers now, clearly you um, you look at a lot and um, and you have to make choices between these managers. I mean, what are the things that you in particular like to look at when making these choices? I mean, what's really important for you? Because I think a lot of people would say, well, you know, one trend follower to another, it's difficult to say what's different about them. And when I look at their correlation, oh, they're 0.7 correlated, so they must be doing the same. And we all know that that's not the reality. That's not how performance pans out. So how have you thought about these things? Um, how have you implemented it in your own um, decision-making process uh, and, and selection process? So that's a pretty long topic, but a few key points are if we can't forecast returns, especially short, medium term, the, the return question is almost a binary question. Do we think they have positive expectancy? Are they likely in our estimation, and make money over the next 5, 10, 15 years? So it's like a yes-no question. So a lot of the rest of the work is based on how we think they're going to interact with the other strategies we're working with. Um, and this is based on the assumption that we're just doing a, a CTA portfolio and not one that's designed to have specific features like negative equity correlation, for example. So then we're looking at a few things. I call it the the, the risk box or the, the strategy box. So we have standalone features and portfolio features, and we're looking at them through both quantitative and qualitative lenses. So on a standalone basis, we're gonna look at quantitative measures of risk, kind of typical things uh, like volatility, skew, things of that nature. And then qualitatively looking at the actual business, how it's run, the team, um, all that stuff. And then on the portfolio level, looking at things like average correlation, max and min correlation with the other strategies, we use a tool called principal component analysis, which is a type of dimension reduction to figure out which strategies are similar or different. And then actually philosophically on the qualitative level, do we expect this strategy to behave in a way that's similar to uh, several or few of the other strategies we allocate to. So a long-term directional trend-following strategy, we would not expect them to have anything other than spurious or accidental high correlation with a short-term pattern recognition trader, for example. Rufus, how do you know, or how do you, how do you look at a optimally diversified portfolio, if that exists? What, what, what does that mean to you? Or in other words, when would you stop adding CTAs to your already existing portfolio of CTAs? I don't know if we can tell in advance that we have the most or best diversified portfolio. Um, so we keep trying to have a better one, subject to a few constraints, right? Depending on the mandate, 
we're typically going to have a volatility target. We're going to have a correlation target. That is, do we want all managed futures or we do want lots of equity or fixed income exposure? But just kind of using the base case of we're running a diversified CTA portfolio and that's it. We're usually not going to bother allocating one or 2% to a strategy. If you, if you look at a portfolio we run and we've just added somebody, they may only be one or 2% as we leg in. But in general, we're not going to bother allocating less than three or 4% and usually not more than uh, 13, 14%. So those are kind of guidelines. Now, there, there's the question of kind of capacity. So if we were running a very large fund, we'd have more smaller alloc allocations just because we don't just invest in trend followers that typically have a lot of capacity. Um, we also al allocate to specialist strategies that are perhaps short-term focused on commodities um, that may have more capacity constraints. So I, I don't have like a number. There's lots of different uh, papers out there that, that propose different types of ratios or estimates of diversification. I don't think any of them are true, but they're all helpful and things that we look at. Understood. One final thing about the allocation, like when you then make an allocation to a CTA, how do you normally make that allocation? Is it a, you know, managed account type of thing, or do you use an existing fund of that manager and just allocate to that? A mix of the two other other things to get exposure. How do you normally go about that? So we typically allocate via managed account or via managed account platform. Mm -hmm. We don't currently run any mandates where we invest in a manager's fund. So almost always managed account platforms right now. A lot of times we talk to investors about how we expect a strategy to operate, how to work, how it works, and then suddenly things happen in markets. And of course, 2020 so far is just one of those periods where it started out in one way, and four months later, we've certainly had a bit of a roller coaster ride in in many markets. Right, we've seen uh, a number of these once in a you know, first time ever type events uh, in the market. So. From your perspective, looking at managers, looking at strategies, these are, oddly enough, probably some of the best times to prove your thesis correct uh, and see if you've made the right choice about the managers. So how has 2020 been so far for you? What's been surprising? What's been as expected? What would you change, et cetera, et cetera? Give us a kind of a, a look into all of that. I guess aggregate performance has been disappointing, if not surprising. Um, all the different pieces of the portfolios we run more or less operated as expected. Um, the dispersion was a little high, uh, which is not surprising. I guess the nature and speed of the, the crisis in March challenged some of the strategies we allocate to a lot, but it was also a great time for some of the other strategies that we allocate to. So it's been challenging in that, you know, we haven't had great performance, but it's not surprising. Things have kind of worked as expected. When things like that happen, that's a good time to review why you do what you do. Uh, has the long-term thesis changed at all? That's why I did some of those exercises looking at 
allocating to either our strategies or benchmarks. And that thesis hasn't really changed whether or not you include the first quarter of this year. Um, but yeah, it's been an exciting quarter. Uh, nothing disastrous. Uh, a little disappointing. And you and and I understand that. But if I was going to press you a little bit on this, because hopefully there there will be some key takeaways. I mean, what have you what have you learned that you didn't know going into this quarter? Would you say about maybe the way you allocate, maybe the way you look at managers, maybe you know, just just you know, in terms of because I think these are really important times uh, that we need to. Um, you know, this is where we evolve and we move forward. And as managers, I mean, for example, we often get asked, oh, so I remember certainly in 2018 in February where people would say, well, why don't you, can you not change your models to be able to make money from an event like February 2018? And the answer is, of course, of course we can. But if we did it, it has a cost because long-term performance is not like February of 2018. And, and I guess March 2020, you know, showed that, yeah, we shouldn't just change to pluck a short-term hole. We should continue to do what we do and believe in that is the best long-term approach to to trading. So I'm just wondering whether there's been anything where you've said, yeah, these are definitely things that even though I've been doing this for a long time, I, um, I've learned something new. I'm not sure I've learned new things to do. I, I think this was a very good test of while things are kind of going crazy, so to speak, can we stick to our process and not fall into the traps that a lot of investors fall into? So that, I think, is the thing that I've learned the most is from our seat, I think the last time we had such exciting times was maybe summer of 2013 uh, when we had that kind of bond route um, and there's some pretty wide dispersion in the strategies we allocated to. That, that's really been it for me this year is, can we really stick to our process, update our estimates of risk on a standalone and portfolio basis and not freak out and make a bunch of changes? Because frankly, that's what we look for the managers we allocate to, to not do. Uh, so it'd be hypocritical for us to make big changes, um, but there is new information that will be incorporated going forward in, in terms of how strategies behave and how they interact with each other and what these really e extreme movements in the markets like on uh, March 12th and 16th, for example, how that plays out with, with our portfolios. I know from, um, from a summary email that you sent us prior to that chat, Rufus, that you're using machine learning methods when you're allocating to CTAs. Um, I assume this is still correct. How, if, if you can, uh, if it's possible to do that, you know, what, what's been the added value of those methods in the first quarter of this year? I don't think it adds a lot of value yet to our process, or it's not a huge weight. I think the primary thing we're doing is using types of dimension reduction to figure out which strategies are similar and different. But it could be argued that strategies, especially PCA, are not machine learning. Machine learning has come to use them and use other strategies like that. Because PCA got, I think it was invented in 1905 or something like that. So it's not necessarily new. So I see it in, in two uses. Number one, 
trying to come up with better estimates of dependence between strategies and markets. And then number two, back to that effort uh, or enterprise of building confidence in a particular strategy or group of strategies. And that's through uh, simulation. So building lots of different outcomes in simulated environments and seeing how things behave. So the dimension reduction is a pretty big piece of what we do. But beyond that, there's not a huge weight in our process coming from machine learning. It's, it's gradually and slowly increasing. So this quarter has some pretty novel information in it in terms of market behavior and CTA behavior. But I guess in summary, we don't really make investment decisions based on a few weeks or a quarter, uh, certainly not large ones. Um, but they, it, that information will be incorporated in what we're doing and going forward. One of the things I wanted to do also, um, since you're on uh, Rufus, is to tap into some of your other experience, which is a little bit based on kind of uh, different types of um, vehicles, um, mutual yeah. funds in the US or ETFs. And Michael, who is one of our uh, loyal listeners, has sent us a question back in March. And I've been saying every week, oh, I'm waiting for this special guest to come on to answer this. <laughs> uh, and, and you are the special guest. So, ah. Michael, thanks for your patience. Uh, we now have an opportunity to uh, to learn a little bit more. And, and so what Michael was asking, you know, uh, have the host ever considered developing a trend-following ETF? Now, so I, I want to broaden out that a little bit and i want you to talk ideally about you know why there are today um a dominance of uh cta mutual funds and not so many etfs what are the differences um what are the challenges with one over the other and and how you see that market because obviously the word etf you hear a lot in the classical uh, asset classes and the growth of etfs is humongous really but um in the cta space um not so much as far as i'm aware tell us a little bit about that sure so we have obviously built mutual funds we also worked with one of the big bank platforms to build usage um, years ago we worked with a firm i will name a name in this circumstance uh, <laughs> we worked with uh, nagal kalajian and paul schneewitz uh, Apologies for mispronouncing your name, Paul, at Quest Partners to build the Quest Tracker Index, um, which was a liquid uh, kind of flat fee uh, trend following index. And so at the time, we did look at building an ETF to track that. Um, and it just didn't kind of make sense, work out for various reasons. So I think ETFs are great. Um, they certainly level the playing field and make a lot of things accessible and inexpensive, especially for retail investors. But when you look at why you're allocating to, say, a trend follower or a portfolio of CTA programs, I can't think of many circumstances in which you need intraday liquidity for that or even even daily liquidity. Because, you know, I look at the world as a strategic allocator. Uh, that means, you know, long-term incremental changes through time. I almost see putting these strategies in an ETF is, is going back to encouraging that bad behavior of, on, the, on the part of investors, making 
rash decisions. Um, usually when you have strong emotional states, I, I ask my students every year, when's the last time you felt really bad and went out and did something really smart? It just doesn't really happen. I, I think putting CTAs, managed futures, trend following in an ETF can be beneficial from the perspective of cost and liquidity and access for a large number of investors. But you have to temper that with it, it almost encourages potentially bad behavior of, of trading a CTA program, which uh, I don't think anyone can do. How much cheaper is it in an ETF and why is it cheaper to do it in an ETF? You know, I, I almost have to pass on this question because I'm I, I haven't done much ETF research recently, Niels. I'm sorry. No, that's fine. And then maybe the, the, the final question I have on that, just also for my own uh, benefit here, ETFs for me, um, I always thought that if you did an ETF, you had to somehow disclose some of the rules you were using. And if we think about this as a CTA product, would that basically mean we had to disclose some of our IP or not? I mean, what can you clarify what that means? And uh, Sure, you know? sure. So this is dated information, but when we were looking at building an ETF, around the Quest Tracker Index, um, we did anticipate that the ETF would attempt to track the performance of an index, and the rules are very transparent, um, and, and that's, that's a requirement. So I, I don't know if that's still the case, Niels, okay. but at that point in time, I did expect we'd have to disclose most or all of the rules behind the strategy. And I, I can get, I totally get why many managers would not want to do that. Yeah, that um, that I <laughs> that I agree with completely. Sure. If, if there is a subscription redemption process, right, creation redemption process, then, you know, the rules ought to be known so that the authorized participants in the U.S. or market makers here in Europe um, can actually, you know, create the portfolio and, you know, create shares. I, I agree with Rufus. I've, um, I, I have you know, difficulties understanding as to why an ETF is required for a trend following strategy. Why would you need intraday liquidity or even daily liquidity or weekly liquidity or any of that? And, um, you know, just this week, just to mention it because I have it here in my notes, the JP Morgan Managed Futures ETF closed, got wound down or it will be wound down uh, in the next coming weeks. But the decision has been made for that fund to be closed. So, there really isn't that much around in trend-following ETF space. There's mutual funds, but ETFs, not that many. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point. Since we have you uh, on to today, Rufus, I want to just ask another question that came in, which is not specifically uh, for you, but since you follow the industry uh, as, as much as we do, there is a question from one of our listeners, uh, Brian. Um, he says, you know, are trend-following slash CTA firms seeing an increase in investor interest this year after all the volatility in the large stock markets that obviously has been well documented in in uh, in the media and then he has one other question which i'm not necessarily sure we can answer maybe we can actually between moritz and i but it would be a sample of two but he says i'm curious what non-us and the non-european markets trend following ctas firms have an allocation to this year i will say the answer was again one of those that i have um because we've had guests on, not been able to answer until now. So it's a couple of weeks old, but still. So, but let's say with you, Rufus, for a second, I mean, 
from your perspective, are you seeing any investor change in terms of demand or not? What have you noticed? So we've seen two things. Um, and this is specific to the mutual funds we sub-advise and the firm that runs them and does distribution. So we have seen some redemptions and the primary driver behind that is kind of like 2008 where there's a liquidity requirement somewhere in the portfolio and the liquid managed futures mutual fund is an obvious place to pull from. Secondly, we have seen a lot of incoming interest and demand from investors for these strategies. Right. So an initial wave of redemptions and then secondly, other investors coming in to look at it, which makes sense. I mean, that's classical for what happens during these periods. And also another thing that actually causes that, if, if people may not be aware of that, a lot of it is also caused by rebalancing. So at the end of the day, you when you rebalance, you have to buy what, you, what has lost money, which is equities. Uh, at least at the end of March, and then you um, redeem from things that have either made you money or not lost you money to get that balance back in shape. And of course, those who have done it have done well in buying cheap equities. And now probably you're going to see a little bit of the reverse, some of that equity exposure being uh, reduced, and then maybe buying other assets, including trend following back again, because it hasn't moved much in the last month or so. So um, so yeah, I can I can certainly uh, concur on on that. Let me quickly run through actually where we stand in terms of an industry, in terms of performance, and maybe uh, Moritz, you might have one final thought or question. Um, but anyways, the beta fifty index uh, is down ten basis points for the month of May, down two percent roughly for the month of oh, sorry for year to date. The CTA index from SOCGEN is down 70 basis points and down 1% for the year. The trend index uh, down less than 1%, but, and, but still up for the year, 1.55%. The short-term traders index uh, is up 40 basis points uh, in May so far and up 4.29% so far this year. And then the flat fee, now that we've talked about these, but there is actually an index of flat fee. Uh, managers, that's down 1.64% this month, and it's up 1.09% so far in 2020. Uh, these are numbers are, as usual, always as of Thursday evening, and I think Friday was actually a good day for the industry as a whole. Just be aware of that. Any final thoughts from you, Moritz? And then I'll come to you, uh, Rufus, just for your final thoughts. Maybe not a thought, but a comment, because uh, everybody speaks about things being negative and prices being negative uh, in recent weeks. And um, there's one more thing. The UK, for the first time, has sold bonds at negative yields. So they have joined the Negative Interest Rate Club this past week. Welcome to what the show. Maturity? What maturity has gone negative? I haven't seen it. I don't know, to be honest. Okay. I, uh, I would need to look it up. Uh, I've just looked at the headline, and um, but I forgot about the maturity. Wow, wow. Pretty interesting, yeah. What about you, Rufus? Any final thoughts that springs to mind? Not especially. I, I I look at the world in as kind of like a slow strategic person. So I think strategies like yours and our industry in particular, or more generally, deserve a place in many risky portfolios. Uh, and we're still functioning as expected. And I think you know market turmoil makes people zoom in on just a few days, and that's one of the things or attitudes or behaviors that people take that's not necessarily going to lead to good outcomes. So I still believe in our strategy, our space, (laughs) 
and I hope people will continue to allocate. And I, I really do appreciate you two having me on, and I apologize for my contribution to the technical difficulties. Well, you know, it's like trend following. There's never a dull day, and there's always a few surprises uh, hidden. So we uh, we take the good and the bad, and today was just one of those days where te technical issues, which, by the way, for those of you out there who have children in the AP College Board exam circus right now, I am mm -hmm. one of them, um, there has been uh, significant technical issues in the last two weeks while you know, millions of exams were taken by high schoolers uh, and that has caused a lot of, a lot more, I think, um, um, trouble for them than what we had today. So let me just leave it at that. Um, I also want to just say that, of course, as usual, you can send us questions by emailing to info at toptradersonplug.com. We love your questions. I know we've been a little bit slow to answering all of them. So uh, people like Brian, Daniel, and James, I know we owe you some answers, and they will come. Next week, uh, we have Jerry back on the show, so I'm sure we'll do maybe an extended version with uh, lots of questions. So, you know, get your questions in so we can uh, dive into all of that. Uh, Rufus, thanks so much for uh, for getting up early on a Saturday where you are and uh, for sharing your knowledge and your views on, on our industry. Um, from Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening in today and we look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, stay safe. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.